Long story short, I have never really known what to identify myself as. I am aware that I look Asian, but I'm also aware I've really adapted to American culture. So that makes it more complex on how I view myself or want other people to view me. And it's always been a little bit of a struggle. Hey, and welcome to I'm Adopted, Now What? A podcast where we talk about all things race, culture, and identity, one chat at a time. This is for people who want to get real, get deep, and figure out, now what? I'm your host, Liza. Welcome to the podcast. Really quickly before we start the episode, I just wanted to address a couple of things I have never done this before and am learning all of the ins and outs of recording basically as I go. And so in this episode and in future episodes to come, there are some points where myself and the person I'm interviewing sort of talk at the same time. And that's just kind of a glitch in the compression of the sound of the audio file So my apologies for that in advance. Editing audio in general, it has been such a crazy learning curve to understand and to learn. So my bad if there are mistakes, but I'm just going to chalk all that up to first season podcaster newbie experience. And I know that it'll get better and I'll improve as I do this more and gain more experience. So that being said, I appreciate you bearing with me while I figure all that out. So in this episode, I catch up with my friend Sienna. Now, I think I say it in the episode and we talk about it, but her and I haven't really chatted since, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, probably longer. And it was really, really nice to finally be in touch with her again. We share an adoption group. Her and I and two other girls were adopted all on the same day, on the same trip. Our parents were all standing in the same room. And for a long time in our childhood, we would hang out and our parents would make a point of it to get us together as a way to make our adoption feel more normal. We fell out of touch for, as I said, all those years, kind of during grade school and high school and through college. And I reached out to her for this project, for the podcast. I honestly didn't know what her reaction was going to be. And I'm so glad that she agreed to talk to me and have the, so I could have the chance to interview her and talk to her about adoption because we have so much history in common. I think she still lives in New Jersey. That's where we both grew up. That's where we're both from. And on this episode, we discuss the idea of adoption normalization and how with every generation, it seems to be changing for the better and becoming more normalized. We also chat about the idea of privilege and how being adopted into white families can either make you hyper aware of your privilege because you're not white, but you're benefiting from white privilege, or how 
being adopted into a transracial family can sometimes make it harder to understand that privilege at the same time. I really hope you guys like the episode. All right, here we go. Sienna? Hi. Hey. Oh my gosh, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm glad the link worked. Yep. Somehow nice. figured it out. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Oh my God. It's been, I don't even know. How long has it been? Since like, at least before high school. Yeah. So definitely 10 years, probably at least. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's really nice to talk to you and be in touch. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for agreeing to be on the podcast. So obviously we know each other a bit. What about my like pitch to you for being involved convinced you or what was interesting about it? Well, I've been very lightly involved with the families with children from China in the past couple of years. So it's sort of just been something, a topic, a subject that's sort of been on my mind more often. So I just thought this would be a fun, oh, sorry, fun way to talk about it. I have a rabbit right now and she just ran into something. So uh, anyways, uh, no worries. (laughs) I'm with my dogs right now and they're snorting in the background. (laughs) Okay, cool. So like, what do you do with the FCC group? Honestly, it's nothing big or super impactful, but I just follow the New York City group which mm-hmm. consists mostly of younger 20-year-olds and some a little bit younger than that, too. And it's just filled with a bunch of, of people that are trying to connect with each other. And sometimes these kids have, you know, questions that they want to talk about, like the 23andMe stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, try to stay in the loop a little bit and give my input whenever I can. Nice. That's cool. That is certainly more interested and involved than I have been with anything Asian or Chinese at all until Mm -hmm. basically the past few months. I just identified as white. It was just white all the time. I actively tried to avoid things that would stereotypically in America make me come off as more Asian. And I had a lot of pride in myself for being as white and American identifying as I was mm-hmm. as I was basically saying like, yeah, no, I'm like, I might look Asian on the outside, but I'm completely like totally white and American on the inside. And I wanted people to know that. And I wanted people to understand that about me. How has your adoption kind of played its role in your identity all this time? Mm-hmm. That I mean, ultimately forever, but especially in the time that we really haven't been in touch. Wow, that's a lot to take in. <laughs> You've been really yeah, thinking. Sorry about that. <laughs> I feel like quarantine does that to people. They just start Definitely. sort of ruminating in their thoughts more easily. Yeah, that's actually, that's really interesting. Everything that you just told me, because I remember when mm-hmm. we were growing up, you seemed very sure of yourself and very certain of the, you know, groups of friends that you were going to have, the things that you were going to do, you know, it seemed like everything you were doing was with conviction and you were just like very sure of who you wanted to be with, who you wanted to hang out with. And now that you've, you've brought in Mm -hmm. all of these new feelings, it's 
that's really, I don't know, I could see why it would be really complicated. You mm-hmm. really yeah. felt a certain way and now you're not kind of sure of where you are and you're kind of on the fence about a lot of cultural things that you kind of allowed yeah. to accept. And that's funny in a sense because that's how I have felt my entire life. Right. And I've never really felt like I know I don't have like a specific identity and I don't know if that has Uh to do with the community that I grew up in, which was largely like a white community and also largely an Asian community. So I Mm. kind of was getting bits and pieces of culture intertwined with each other during my school years, especially. But yeah, I think where you are is where I've been. (laughs) Mostly. Mm, Okay. Yeah. yeah. But it's funny. I don't think I ever wanted to consider myself white or American. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want other people to consider me that as well. So when you Mm -hmm. admittedly were telling people like, oh, you're a banana, you're a Twinkie, like that's stuff Mm -hmm. that I found really offensive if other people told me. And I think it's, at that age, you know, even. Um, yeah, yeah. And I don't know. It was really hard for me. And sometimes it still is. Sometimes I still don't even know how I should identify myself. Like if someone asks me, like, oh, well, what are you? I usually, mm-hmm. nowadays especially, just sort of halt. And I, I don't know what to say all the time. I took a DNA test, which I just very mm-hmm. recently, actually, because I was too scared to in the past. And I am mm-hmm. 100% Chinese. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was surprising and unsurprising at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, so now I could specifically tell people that I'm Chinese. But if I tell Chinese people that I'm Chinese, it's incredibly different. Because right. they, then, you know, leading questions are, oh, well, when did you move here? Do you speak Chinese? Are your parents Chinese? And then when they start to realize that I'm adopted, I don't speak a lick of Chinese, and my parents are both white, mm-hmm. it really changes their perspective of who I am, especially if I'm talking to, like, you know, the boomer generation of Asian parents. And that always as well has been really challenging to come to terms with, especially Mm because most of my friends were Chinese. And I think mostly just because they happen to be not by choice that I'm picking (laughs) specific ethnicities that I wanted to be friends with. So long story short, I have never really known what to identify myself as. I am aware that I look Asian, but I'm also aware that I have many American cultural, I've, you know, really adapted to American culture. Mm -hmm. And so that almost, if anything, makes it more complex on how I should, how I view myself or want other people to view me. And it's always been a little bit of a struggle. (laughs) Do you feel any type of way being a minority or not being a minority or being in a weird middle gray space in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement specifically. In terms of feeling like a minority in relation to that, I don't even compare myself. I don't even, I I just can't. So I don't know. The only reason I ask that question is because 
it just was such a moment for me. My work was posting like social, like, you know, doing like social Mm -hmm. justice posts. And as a staff member, we were each given the opportunity to like choose an organization or a community or something that we wanted to draw Mm -hmm. attention to using like the larger restaurant like audience like the plot like because you know like they had more followers than any of us Mm -hmm. individual people and I think I was like the last one to even want to participate because I like didn't know what to say like I was like okay I feel white I felt white my whole life and now being white is wrong and bad and that's how I felt and so I didn't feel like it was my place to like speak out as a minority because like the whole idea was like we were we were like a minority owned and minority run Mm -hmm. business and that was the perspective that we were like making these posts and I could not relate because I didn't feel like a minority so I like had so much trouble coming up with something and maybe all of this pushing away and rejection and unwillingness to engage in anything that was not white that attitude and that behavior might be coming to an end like I just all kind of realized that so for me when I asked that question I'm not really meaning to say like, oh, how has your experience as an Asian minority been compared to the experience Mm, of black, of being black as a minority in the country? I think I mean it more like it was clearly just a time or still is a time when the country was reconciling that we don't treat race the same and but particularly like white versus black and if you are not white and you are not black then you fall somewhere in the middle on this like race spectrum where like white is a polar opposite and black is a polar opposite and being asian or brown you know you kind of just fall wherever you fall in the middle and i'd never considered myself to be of that Mm. middle before seems very similar to a lot of people who talk about kind of realizing how privileged they are and I in that regard I totally Mm -hmm. like I know I'm privileged (laughs) my entire family is privileged and we're very very lucky to be that way and there is right now in this moment there's nothing we can do to change the privilege that we are in and it's not I wouldn't consider privilege a value or an action it just sort of happened. Oh, I think I think that just that just happening like concept is really interesting and it's unique when you talk about it in the context of being adopted because in a way that I feel like I mean, I guess one could argue that you know, oh, like this DNA from this parent and this DNA from that parent came together and it just happened to like create you. But I think there's an extra Mm -hmm. layer of that for us because that happens for us too because we were born from DNA from people. But then it happens again because Mm -hmm. of the adoption part. Like it happens once with like our 
DNA relatives and our DNA like parents. And then it happens again where you have this sensation of, oh my God, like I could have been uh-huh. adopted by anyone. And it just so happened that I was adopted into a family of privilege, let's say. Although as I'm saying this, <laughs> I'm realizing that I think adoption is more easily afforded to people of mm-hmm. privilege because it's like an expensive thing to do. Like it, it's expensive. It takes a lot of time. And I think that in and of its, I think maybe being able to adopt is a sign of privilege yeah. perhaps in some ways, although maybe not in others because maybe some people adopt because they don't have the privilege to birth their own child. And then maybe for them, it doesn't feel like a privilege, right? But at least for me, the way I see adoption, not necessarily as an adoptee, but just adoption in general, is that you just happen to be adopted into a family of privilege or less privilege. This episode is sponsored by, yep, mm mm-hmm, that's right. No one still, (laughs) but that's okay because it takes a while for these things to catch on. I am going to talk about for a second 23andMe as Sienna and I have discussed a little bit in the episode. Now, I did 23andMe when it first came out, oh gosh, like five or six years ago, I think, or it was just like It was before it was sort of popular and it was before people started giving DNA kits as gifts for things. And it was really cool. It was, aside from all of the genetic stuff, it was really nice to have peace of mind in terms of my health, not knowing if like diabetes or cancer or dementia, things that can go wrong in terms of your hereditary genes It was really nice to be able to get at least a baseline for that kind of stuff. Obviously, 23andMe should not replace going to your doctor and having a medical professional take your blood and run blood tests, but it was a fun and sort of peace of mind type of thing for me that I've really enjoyed going back to over the years seeing, you know, what kind of things are dominant and recessive, you know, like how you do Punnett squares in biology in high school. And as 23andMe's database keeps growing, which it does every single time that people do a test, it adds to the database and and it changes other people's results. It's cool to kind of check back in every now and again and see what's changed and what's stayed the same So yeah, if you haven't done it, it's really, really easy. You just order it. Now, it is slightly expensive. It's like $100 or to $150, I think, dollars per kit. But again, you have those results and that access for life. So if it's something you can afford to do and you're interested in genealogy or your own physical traits, then I highly recommend it. 23andMe. Go check it out. All right. Back to the episode. Do you want to go to China or do like visit your orphanage or anything like that? Is that, I mean, obviously I feel like we've all talked about it at some point, but has that stuck with you? I couldn't even specifically say why, because I have nothing against, you know, (laughs) the Mm. country. I just, I'm not. And I think 
a lot mm-hmm. of that is just because I am very happy with my life, like my family life. The fact that I'm adopted isn't particularly, isn't what I find that bothers me. It's just sort of my race and my cultures are kind of what have been the most challenging for me. Even when I was really little, I was very settled with the idea that like, this is my family. I don't ever need, I don't have like this sense of loss of not knowing my hometown, my, you know, actual family, but I know a lot of people do. Yeah. Well, I will say if you had asked me any time other than in 2020, if that is something I'd want to do, I mean, I would be like, are you kidding me? Mm. Uh, That is the opposite of what I want to do. Like I have never, I've never wanted to do that. I've never had that desire not to like insult people who do. It just was, I was just so emphatically not, not wanting to do that for myself. But then I don't know. I think what I have processed and what I've come to, I think is Mm -hmm. losing my dad right when I started college was just kind of a really sucky time because to lose him, because I had to process losing my parent. And if I hadn't, if I didn't need all of my like mental energy and physical energy to process that and be in school, maybe I would have realized sooner like Mm -hmm. my thoughts on family and my family and how exactly like you my entire life like I wasn't curious because Mm -hmm. I felt very secure in who my parents were and who my family was and I didn't need like I didn't need blood to tell me who my family was you know and I would be the first person to say like oh listen, I'd be dead before you hear me say this. And yet here I am saying it that like, I am now extremely closer, I think, to wanting than I ever have been. And even (laughs) saying that out loud, like makes me feel weird. (laughs) Because I'm not used to like, I'm not used to wanting that or I'm not even used to wanting Mm -hmm. to like, explore that thought, you know, do you feel like adoption is normalized and what does that word in the context of adoption even mean to you i don't know if i'd say i know it to be normalized but i also don't know a lot of adopted people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know with the way things have been changing in china and their new policies with children has changed i don't even know if adoption right. will ever fully, I don't know if it'll like continue in the same way that it has, if that makes any sense, you know, like I'm assuming the like oh, statistics yeah, for the amount of not. children that are being orphaned or being adopted is probably decreasing. I do not know the specifics on that. So don't quote me on anything, but I would just assume that most likely <laughs> the percentages of children being adopted in China is going down. So, yeah, I would assume I, I'm that as well. I'm not sure I would ever say it will be normalized. I have to say, probably one of the weirder questions <laughs> was a Filipino man asking me if you grew up with white parents, did you eat white people food? And 
I didn't even know what to say. I didn't know what to say. I well, will say. Yeah. Yeah. The younger generations or the younger people that I talk to don't straight out ask me anything in regards to being adopted, which actually has been really interesting. I'm just sort of figuring this out. I'll have a lot of adult, older people than Mm -hmm. me (laughs) come up to me and ask me immediately, where are you from? Or they ask, where are your parents from? Or if they're trying to be really sly, they say, where are your grandparents from? And I can't even tell them because I don't know. You know, older people are (laughs) constantly trying to figure out my ethnicity. And then, of course, immediately afterwards, I have to say that I'm adopted. Or sometimes I don't. And then it gets kind of complicated right. if I don't, because then they keep asking me questions. So eventually, you know, it comes down to them knowing that I'm adopted. Mm-hmm. But the younger kids don't ask me that. And they're not surprised if I tell them. Or if they are, they're very good at not being outwardly surprised. Because I do yeah. think they're learning just in yeah. general how to be respectful towards people of other ethnicities. Yeah, no, I think that's totally right. This is incredibly generalized, but I I would like to think that their foundation on growing mm. up has sort of been all about shedding light on, you know, smaller groups of people and, you know, changing the way that people identify yes. themselves as. And they're, they're constantly kind of headbutting stereotypes so in, I guess in that way, you could say that mm-hmm. adoption is sort of normalized to a degree just because of the way that yeah people are kind of changing the way that they think. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's something that is happening now. I think it's being normalized. It's normalizing right now. And I think it has a lot to do with, you know, open-minded younger generations but i think it also comes from Mm -hmm. people our age like us and like through podcasts and through you know mediums (laughs) other than textbooks where we can sort of not force conversations about adoption where we're not seen as adoptees but we're seen as the multi-dimensional multi-layered complex people that we feel we are because it's not like we're adopted and that is that like sums up our identity like in any sense of totality and i hope that it's like podcasts like this and conversations like ours and people like us who who are who are doing the normalizing and i think that's really cool yeah that we can, yeah that yeah. we can do that and we have the power to do that we're the first wave of adopted millennials who are coming of age and old enough to really put their experiences and thoughts about being adopted into like their work or into what they produce or, you know, really like have deep discussions about it. Cause you can't like, you can't talk about this stuff when you're 16 in mm-hmm. the same way you can when you're 26, probably in the same way you can talk about it when you're 36 or 66. And so the fact that we are all coming of age and, you know, maybe some of us are closer to 30 <laughs> than we are to 20. So 
And, you know, that's like, that's like exciting because I think about like me at 10 years old, like, okay, I don't want to read like a clinical, like psychologist's like published work of what it means to be adopted. Mm -hmm. I want like, I want to hear from people who can relate to me. Like, where are all the hip, cool, young people who Mm -hmm. were adopted that I can talk to about this? And they didn't really exist. I feel like millennial generations are more likely to say like, hey, let's talk about race or hey, let's let's talk about like why we're different and how we can come together. Whereas, you know, previous generations talking in those sort of unguarded ways really wasn't Mm -hmm. wasn't, shall we say, trending. And so I think it's really cool that we can, you know, have this conversation and be so candid. Did you feel like there weren't resources in this sort of freeing way when you were younger? Did you wish there were resources? Were you looking for resources? Because I feel like I read every book, every kid's book there Mm. was on like being adopted when I could. And I don't, I don't know if that Um, is something that you did or not. I think I, for a long time, I just sort of let things happen. And when I look back on them, Mm. At this age where, you know, more recently than ever, I've been really thinking about my, like, place in the universe, I guess. I think Mm -hmm. it would have been helpful to have the ability to be more open about my internal problems, as I think most people Mm -hmm. are. (laughs) And I think it would have been really helpful for myself if I had just told people you know, issues that I had when I, you know, when someone would call me a Twinkie, you know, I didn't tell anyone that it just started with something Mm -hmm. that kind of sat inside me for a really long time. And, you know, would have been nice to be able to talk to someone about, you know, going over to my friend's parents home and learning how to make dumplings with them. But the whole time they were trying to talk to me in Chinese or trying to teach me Chinese, and I didn't know any and it was really weird. Or it would have been really nice even to Mm -hmm. talk to someone about how I wasn't good at school like all of my other Chinese friends and how weird it was to have people just assume that I was really good at math. I kind of ended up very insecure for a very long time. And if anything, you know, as all Mm. insecurities tend to lead to a lot of defensiveness and, you know, only now am I realizing that that's sort of been quite a crutch that I've been, <laughs> you know, walking around with for a really long time. And, you know, so I hope mm-hmm. that for other, because we're such a specific group of people, I hope that there are people yeah. that are willing to reach out about, you know, their problems or, you know, happen to find a group. I know the Facebook group I'm with, they tend to talk a lot about microaggressions Mm -hmm. that they've experienced or, you know, Mm. their decisions on whether or not they want to know what their DNA is through 23andMe. And some people even Mm -hmm. talk about wanting to go back to China, but they're not sure if they want to yet. So, you know, and I think that's really great. Mm -hmm. And I wish I had done that so you know hopefully the internet and Mm -hmm. stuff like that has kind of been helpful to the younger generations of of people yeah no I think that's a really good point that when you like 
don't have resources that you feel like like understand you then you just bottle it up and then that can lead to not only defensiveness but a lack of clarity in moments when it would probably be really nice to have clarity about your identity Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Sienna. It's been really great okay. to reconnect. Yeah. And please tell your family that I said hi, if you want, obviously. Great. All um, right. Have a good one. You know, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thanks. You too. Okay, bye. Bye. Okay, that concludes my interview with Sienna and also this episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. I always really like talking to people who I know it's just a different vibe than talking with people I've never met before, especially in COVID times where a lot of this I would normally do in person. Having that extra level of familiarity is always really, really nice for me as the interviewer. Now, since this is supposed to be sort of my new job or, well, can you call it a job if it doesn't pay you anything? Who knows? But that's not the question. (laughs) My question is, what is one job you would never do no matter how much someone paid you? And on the flip side of that, what is your dream job that you've always wanted to do and you still wish you could do? As always, there will be an Instagram post on the imadopted.podcast Instagram feed where you can leave your answers in the comments below. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'm Adopted, Now What? Hosted by me, Liza. If you liked what you heard, then please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Leave a good review and share this episode with a friend. If there's a topic you'd like to hear discussed on a later episode, DM me and tell me all about it. You can do that and find this podcast on Instagram and Facebook at imadopted.podcast. See you there.